have. Uh, we affectionately know that as car crap in our house, <laughs> and we kick it off at every point. Like, I don't know if you're like that, so my garage is disgusting for that reason, but there's so many moments, whether it's on the lakeshore or driving over at the sunrise, it's just like, wow, it's a very beautiful place. I'm curious, though, because I know some of you love to travel like uh, Lindsay and I do. I'm curious the most beautiful place you've ever been. Now, take a few seconds and think about it. So maybe it is Byron Center, which is fine. I judge you, but that's fine. But the most beautiful place you've ever been. So just literally, if you're online, you can type this out. But if you're in this room, I want you to literally shout it out. Just tell me tell the most beautiful place you've ever been. One, two, three, go. Let me hear from somebody. Tetons, somebody else. Grand Canyon, any place international, tropical people. Jamaica, come on now. We're, let's go. I mean, I'm with you. Let's go right now. That sounds perfect. Well, give me one more. Be- oh, let's go. New Zealand, okay. A little Kiwi, as they say. That's awesome. Uh, it's funny because I was thinking about that for, for Lindsay and I. And some of you know, a few summers ago, uh, we kind of had our dream trip. It was like, hey, we want to start trying to have a family so we should probably do all the fun, expensive things now. Like, that's kind of what we decided. So 2019, we took a, a long trip over to Europe, did some stuff in Switzerland, Italy, and France. And I would say the French Alps, it's, at least so far, all the places you listed sound beautiful, but I've never been to some of them, but is by far the most beautiful place I've ever been. I mean, here's a, here's a picture of downtown Chamonix. This is one of the valley cities we stayed in. It's just, like, incredible. The weather was beautiful. 14,000 foot, some of the highest peaks in the Alps, and then you're in this valley with this beautiful river going through the downtown and, and little French cafes everywhere. It was amazing. It was so beautiful. I loved every part of it. Now, what you know about traveling internationally, and if you've ever even been to Europe in the recent past, is it's not exactly a cheap thing. Like, it costs some money to get to France, and, and specifically that corner of the Alps is an expensive place to try to get to. And so it it took a lot of saving and a lot of preparation, but we did it, and it was beautiful. But what if I invited you and maybe your family to say, okay, I I think you all need to go to Chamonix. You all need to experience the beauty of that. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to pay the whatever it is for you at the time, which is $10,000 for your family. I'm going to pay $10,000 for you to go and experience Chamonix. How many of you would take me up on the offer? I'm guessing if you're smart, probably all of you, unless you're like super anti-French, and we could talk about that later. I don't know. But but it would be a beautiful offer. I mean, if someone offered me, I'd be all in. Like, yes, what do I need to do? Now, imagine if instead of saying, I'm going to do this, and, and I'm going to send you the directions to the airport, you, all you got to do is get get to where I'm telling you to go, and you'll be fine. Like, I've been there before. It's covered. And you get the directions from me, and it takes you to an art gallery. Now, you would be obviously confused. But let's just say you're like, okay, whatever. Maybe John's meeting me at this art gallery, and then going to give me, I don't know how this is going to work. But you all hop in the car. You've got your bags. You're, you're psyched. You're ready to go. You've told all your friends. You've made arrangements. You've set aside other cash to have in country. Uh, you made sure that your vacation and PTO is all figured out. You made sure people are covering for you at your job or, or you've got your assignments kind of pre-done or figured out with your teachers. And so everyone's ready to go. You get to this art gallery and, and you walk in the double doors and you see a picture, a four by six picture of Chamonix. And I'm standing there because I'm a nice guy and I don't want you to be lost and say, you guys made it. 
Like you made it to Chamonix. I, I've got the picture for you. It's right here. Everything you need to know about Chamonix is right here. Like the picture I just showed you, it's beautiful. It's, it's exotic. It's different than where you are. You got to get in the car. You got to pack up your stuff, and you made it. How many of you would be not only furious with me, because you would, but you would be disappointed? Like, I'm pretty sure if that happened to me, if Lindsay and I had that same experience, I'd be very disappointed. The point I'm trying to make is that for a lot of us, when it comes to what we're talking about today, that's exactly been our spiritual experience for many years. Where we know the real thing, or we know what God can truly be like, and yet we settle for much, much less than what he's actually like. And we settle for what the the scriptures define as idols. Things that kind of look like the real thing or things that we think are going to bring satisfaction and flourishing and bring us back to kind of being fully alive and fully human, and yet they always seem to disappoint and to fail us. This is what the scriptures describe as idolatry. And just like that bumper showed, we're kind of stepping into sermon two of movement to of this series. We're just calling Pursuit, how God pursues his people through the scripture story. And for these next couple of weeks, we're looking at this whole idea of being fallen or, or something breaking in the process of being created and in the process of being like built to walk in relationship with God. It's what all of us truly, really desire. And the question we're asking this, this sermon and these couple sermons is what went wrong? If we were created back in Genesis 1 and 2 to walk in full relationship with our maker, full flourishing, and to to rule over the earth, to to live out our full identity as God-created people, what happened? What went wrong? And last week we looked at kind of the unique story of Adam and Eve and how evil starts to break into the world and how their independent decision led to kind of chaos for the rest of us. But as you look through the rest of the Old Testament, here's what I think is really, really interesting. Over and over again, you would think, who is the person? Because in the conversation with Adam and Eve, there's this kind of hint at someone will come who will make things right. Someone will come who will restore us back to Eden, restore the garden relationship back to humanity and to their creator. And so probably God's people every single day would wake up thinking, well, who's going to do that? How's that going to happen? And so you see in the Old Testament line after line of great leaders, and you think, that's it. Abraham, that's the guy, right? Genesis 12 makes a covenant with God, this incredible promise to be a blessing to all nations. You're like, Abraham's got to be the guy to restore it. If he can just live this out, he will get it right. And then Abraham fails to do that in some way. And then you go to the next one. You say, well, okay, maybe it's Moses. Like Moses got him out of Egypt, this incredible leader, this visionary person. He cares about justice. He cares about Israel. He cares about protecting the Lord's name. Like it's probably going to be Moses. Well, then Moses ends up failing, and he falls away, and Israel doesn't exactly go where God wants him to go. And then you look at other leaders, people like Joshua. You think maybe it's, maybe it's a female leader who's going to rise up and fix everything since the guys keep screwing it up, and, and none of those leaders seem to happen. Then you get to David. It's like, man, after God's own heart, this is the guy. David's going to establish the kingdom of Israel. He's going to bring us back into a full relationship with our creator. He's going to restore Eden for us. And then David doesn't end up being the guy to do that. And so if you're like me, you think, well, who is it? Well, the prophet Jeremiah writes this biographical account of the guy 
that most of us, if you're an Israelite at the time, would think, okay, finally. Like Abraham, nope. Moses, nope. David, nope. Joshua, nope. Maybe this guy, maybe David's son will make it happen, and his name is Solomon. Because right at the beginning of Solomon's story, Solomon asks God for wisdom, and and really wisdom in this sense is an open heart. He says, I want to have an open heart. I want to be wise to what you want to do. And Israel probably craved this. I mean, if you're in Israel, the tension and the anticipation would have built for generation after generation. Solomon steps up. So you think Solomon's it because he's going to be like the better version of Adam. See, Adam and Eve took wisdom, right? The knowledge of good and evil. They took it for themselves, this independent, selfish decision. And Solomon asks God for wisdom. He asks for this open heart. He asks for this relationship. So let's read in 1 Kings 11, and let's see how it went, okay? If you have your Bible, uh, the reference will be here. You can put up on a device or a physical Bible like I've got. First uh, Kings verse or chapter 11. This is written by the prophet Jeremiah, chronicling some of the great leaders of Israel's history. Uh, listen to what we read. King Solomon, right? So here's the leader. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites. This is important. Don't miss this. You must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their, say that word with me, gods. You will surely get your heart turned towards other gods. Nevertheless, Solomon, so nevertheless God's instruction, Solomon held fast to them, his wives, in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. I'm married to one woman. I can't even picture a thousand. It's just like this is a hard story for me to understand. I'm like, what are you thinking? Like, I'm an okay husband with one. I can't imagine you multiply that by that many. Yeah, anyway, that, I have a lot of questions about Solomon, but that's a big one. Verse 4, as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. You can read idols. And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of Sidonians, Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely, as David his father had done. So on a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. High place is kind of a reference to a spiritual site or a religious place. Maybe you've traveled, you've seen like kind of high temples or, or, or kind of monuments built to other gods. This is what's happening here. He's acknowledging other gods beside his creator god. He did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. Verse 9, the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. Do you think if Solomon's going to be it, and then you read a chapter like that, you're like, okay, I guess he wasn't it. I guess another leader has failed. But I want to ask the question, why? Like, what, what happened to Solomon? If he started out with this passion, 1 Kings 3, you can read it, it says Solomon had a passionate love for the Lord. 
Solomon, in the very beginning of his story, asked for an open heart to the Lord. He asked God for wisdom. He asked for the clarity to lead Israel, God's people, the way that God wanted them to be led. But he starts to make decisions. He starts to make decisions in his own life, in his household, that that actually trickle out into the rest of the Israelite kingdom about this issue of idolatry. He starts to worship other gods. He starts to have his heart drawn to other things. And you're like, man, a thousand wives. Like, that should be red flag number one, right? If you're hiring someone, it's like, tell me about your home life. They're like, I have a thousand wives. You're like, okay, I don't want to get fired, but wow, that's a lot. Like, that is an overwhelming amount of women in your house. Like, that is estrogen island, okay? That is, like, it's hard for you to picture living in that environment. But Solomon clearly had some issues. We're going to dig into that. But What's really interesting is that Solomon's marriages, these hundreds of wives, this was not uncommon in the culture he was living in. In fact, other nations, like he had listed in the scripture that we read, other nations had like their leaders as a sign of diplomacy, as a sign of power, as a sign of control, would have hundreds of wives, hundreds of these slaves, who their whole purpose was to bring pleasure to the king, to bring pleasure to the leader. So Solomon is not necessarily doing something that was like, wow, I can't believe that guy. But what he is doing is making a decision to go exactly against God's best for him. To, to acknowledge God, yes, you've created me with design. Yes, you've created me for this. But I don't think that you know what's best. I would like to run my own life is essentially what Solomon does. So God's vision for his people, why he instructs Solomon so clearly about this is he wanted them to be distinct and allegiant to him only and, and to, to live in that kind of Eden relationship where all they need is found in all that God is. See, here's what Solomon failed to understand. And, and man, I'm preaching to myself for this whole message because over and over again, I neglect the reality that our Father, that your Heavenly Father, your Creator, will never fail us, but idols always will. Our Father will never fail us, but idols always will. I remember sitting in a counselor's office about two or three years ago, and he said something. We were talking exactly about this issue, and he said, you know what idols do? They always overpromise and underdeliver, because they act like they're going to bring the satisfaction and the fulfillment and, and the life, but that only God can bring, and you end up being disappointed, frustrated, and burnt out. There's some red flags already in Solomon's story where you can see this stuff has taken root. Look, with, look back with me in verse 2. In 1 Kings 11, 2, this says, there were from nation, They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry. He gives them that instruction. Nevertheless, that next line, Solomon held fast to them in love. Remember what I said about 1 Kings 3? Solomon had held fast to God in love. He had a passionate desire to pursue God, and that starts to switch over to these women and, and, a, and kind of appeasing other power leaders in his, in his region. It starts to turn away from what it was supposed to be. This word love is like a very, very strong love. Like before you're married to your wife, love. You're like, wow, I, I am passionately in love with this person. I have a, a, like a burning desire to be with them. It's almost, it has like hints of different appetites, and, and really the, the word love here is not just 
horizontal, like human relationship, what happens in, in the word he's, Jeremiah uses, it actually is reflecting of God's love for us. He's saying the same passion and pursuing love God has for Solomon, Solomon, instead of returning that back, gives that to other people. He reflects it and says, I, I, God, I don't actually love you that much anymore. It's, it's going towards these other human beings, these other idols that I've placed in my life. But I want to read the next verse after that. Verse 4 is one, or sorry, the two verses from there, First uh, Kings 11, 4. This verse haunted me this week. It haunted me because uh, I'm a whopping 30 years old, Okay. Some of you could be my grandparents, and some of you could be my kids. Like, it's, it's that, we have that much of a spectrum here. But I'm 30 years old, and something happened literally like the day after my 30th birthday. I started to feel a little bit older. Like, someone always asks you every birthday, right? Like, hey, do you feel older? <laughs> like, a terrible joke every, every birthday. Do not make that joke, all right? If you go here, you don't get to make that joke. But someone, someone asked me at this, this birthday, and I was like, it's interesting. Something about a new decade does make me feel older. And then I had a kid. And I was like, wow, I feel really, really old. Like, I don't have the same energy. And getting up and down 50, like, thousand times a day to pick her up is not as easy as it once was. And listen to verse 4. Listen to verse 4. It starts out, Jeremiah writes it, as Solomon grew, what is it? Old. As Solomon grew old old, his wives, his idols, you could say, turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was no longer fully devoted to his God as the heart of David, his father, had been. That's the scary truth about idols. It's a scary truth about putting things that feel God-like in, in place of who God really is and who he wants to be in your life, is that idolatry over time, unconfronted, grows. Idolatry unconfronted over time grows. That's what happens to Solomon. This is what happens in 1 Kings 11. You can read other parts of the story. This is what's taking place. I mean, you could go list by list through some of the gods and idols that Solomon began to worship here. I mean, some of them are, it's rated R. I can't like show you or describe for you exactly what would have to happen to worship these other gods, but gods like the queen of heaven, who's Asheroth or Molech, who required child sacrifice, kind of the, the opposite of the Imago Dei, the opposite of God creating all life inherent with dignity and value. Chemosh is kind of this rival God from another nation to the God of Israel. I mean, he begins to have his heart turned toward these other gods. And again, you'd ask the question, how does that happen? How, how, does, how does a leader who's supposed to be locked in to what God wants and who God is. How does this even take place? And to me, it goes back to that idea. There were idols in Solomon's life that slowly eroded his love for God. He wasn't aware of them. He wasn't willing to confront them. He wasn't willing to, to act like they're that big of a deal. Because I think by time, as, as we just read, as Solomon grew older, these idols became things he could not live without. And if you're honest, you look at your own spiritual life, there are broken patterns of thinking and living and, and things that you and I draw our worship towards that are not our Father, that are not our Creator, that just feel natural. They just feel like they happen. It's almost like an automatic response in times of pressure, in times of conflict, in times of stress, that we run to things that are actually hurting us and not making us the kind of people God wants us to be. 
sometimes it's helpful to see through specific lenses. And uh, author, theologian Tim Keller kind of puts these idols in four different categories. And you can see all of these in Solomon's life, right? The first one is power. Some of us have an idolatry towards power, of being in charge, of, of controlling people and situations. This is Solomon going way overboard and marrying like, a th- like 700 women and having 300 concubines. Again, the, the instruction from God was not to do this, but Solomon does this. Why? Not because he was just a wild guy, but because by doing that, it's what the text says, it actually gave him connections and other nations and other tribes and other regions, it gave him more power. He had more control. The second kind of form of idol we can take is approval. And this is one I can struggle with. Where what happens in Solomon's life is he's so desperate for other people to like him and to respect him and to approve of his leadership that he takes on these other gods. Like, I don't think Solomon woke up one day and like, hey, instead of worshiping God who loves children, maybe we should sacrifice children. Why would someone do that? It's totally backwards. But what happens is his heart gets drawn towards this need for approval. How about the third one? The, the third one, Tim Keller says, is comfort. And some of us have that the idol of comfort, of making sure everything is okay, making sure that when it's cold, I'm warm, which is a good thing, by the way. I endorse that. But, but other situations in life where we can literally sacrifice our love for God in, in, this, in the space of comfort. I mean, let's just be honest. You have 700 women at your disposal that you have taken advantage of. There's some warped need for pleasure and comfort in your life. I'm going to leave it right there. So, have kids in the room, but like, there are some weird needs you have to have some comfort and pleasure in your world. Fourth category is control. This is something, if we're honest, probably all of us on varying degrees struggle with. And Solomon clearly had a control issue. Again, you don't have a thousand women under your house unless you really like being in charge you re- or thinking you're in charge. Like, like, he really wanted to make sure that he had like a, a thumb on all of these rival women, all of these foreign women that were coming in and out of his house. Not only does it speak to polygamy's kind of warped way of thinking as a man kind of dominating over multiple women, but it's also the fact that Solomon was the king of Israel. He was the leader of God's people, and he still had this warped, idolatrous need to control things and people and the kingdom. The sad part is if you read through the rest of Solomon's story, and Jeremiah documents this, you can read this in 1 Kings, and 2 Kings kind of keeps the story going. Solomon dies at the age of 60, which is quite young in the biblical narrative. He dies at the age of 60, and one biblical scholar pointed out that Solomon's leadership and his life dies with a dull thud. It just evaporates. It's, that, that thud was not planned. I don't know if anyone else heard that. Okay, I was like, nice. I don't know who added that. It was perfect. But Solomon dies at the age of 60 with just this kind of vapor of what could have been. This sad story of a man who started out really desiring to lead and to, and to live in the fullness of God's will and his wisdom and ends up evaporating and falling apart at the age of 60. Uh, I've been married to Lindsay for just over eight years. It's been the best eight years of my life. But I, I did, she kind of pointed out something to me very, very early on in marriage that I didn't know I had. And maybe you struggle with this too. I remember sitting at the refrigerator, and she said, John, you have MRB. 
And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, I've never even heard that. I've never even heard that phrase. Anyone have this? Male refrigerator blindness? Does anyone else have this? Like, am I the only guy in the room? Okay, just making sure. Like, you just stand there, you're like, I don't see that anywhere. But I struggled with this for a long time, apparently. I didn't know I struggled with it, but I have MRB. It's a, it's a thing I live with, okay? It's just something I manage, and uh, I'm, I'm making it slowly day by day, trying to figure it out. But male refrigerator blindness, man, is a real thing. And what makes this worse is that Lindsay's kind of coined my nickname around her house as the sauce boss. Like, she knows that I'm obsessed with different sauces. Like, anytime I go to Chick-fil-A, it's like, how much can you give me? You know what I'm saying? Like, I need three or four. I need a mix and match, have things go in and out of each other. Like, I need stuff on my salad, stuff on my bowl, stuff on my burrito. I just cannot eat something dry. It's like the worst thing in the world to me, which makes my condition, MRB, that much worse, okay? Because I have to open the fridge and look for the specific sauce I need for that moment, okay? Anyone else feeling me here? Am I the only? Just make, okay, so I am the only. All right, perfect. Okay, yeah, pointing out at Peter, I love it. But as I'm standing there, I can literally look through this refrigerator multiple times. And we have a big refrigerator. Like, it shouldn't be that hard to find things. There's a lot of space for those guys in there. But I'm looking around. I'm like, where's the sriracha? Or where's the ketchup? Where's the barbecue sauce? Where's the buffalo sauce? She's like, John, are you serious? You're literally staring right at it. It's like right there. You can, how did you possibly... Miss it. And so, again, it's something I live with. Please pray for me as I'm growing in that. But I think about Solomon's story, friends. This is the painful reality of having idols in your life. You really don't know they're there until someone else points them out to you. Like, it's easy to read 1 Kings 11. You're like, dude, what a, what a screw-up. He could have been a great leader, and, and yet wife after wife, situation after situation, a trip up to the high place after trip up to the high place. This guy just lost his way. How is that even possible? But friends, if you do not look for idols, you will not see them. And what you don't address, what you can't see, you cannot change. You can't confront. You can't get healed from. Like, like we do this as parents. Like you can say, man, I love having kids, and having kids is a good thing. The second you start to idolize kids, it becomes a horrible thing. You may say, I have a great job. I'm making lots of money. Sales are better in 2022 than they have ever been. Sales are a good thing. But if sales become God, they become idols, it becomes a horrible thing. You could say, man, I, I love my spouse. I'm newly married or I'm just about to get married. I love my wife. I love my future husband. That's a good thing. But the second that thing, that person, that relationship becomes an idol, it's a horrible thing. It's awful. It's so backwards to the way God has wired you and wired me. That's why it's almost helpful to be able to see them. I was trying to think about, like, how, how do you identify some of these things? They feel so close to the real thing. Just like Adam and Eve, it was like this deception, this trick that the serpent plays on Eve. And I want to walk you through uh, an acronym. That's, I was just trying to think through, how do I make this practical? How do I make this helpful? And so this is super old school, and if you don't want to even take notes on it, you won't offend me, but this has been really helpful for me to try to identify what are some things that may keep me from God's best in my life. So let's just rapid fire through them. It's just literally the word idol, and here are the four things, four questions. Independence or independent. The question to ask, if you're wondering, is this thing an idol in my life? Is this helping me abide and depend on Jesus? 
Like if it's drawing you towards an independent life, it's likely drawing you away from Jesus. It's that clear. It's that simple. Is this helping me abide or depend on Jesus? Second thing, desire. What unmet desire is underneath this? I'm not talking about like the thing. I'm talking about the thing beneath the thing, right? Like what's underneath this desire? Like what, what thing do I know in my head? Like I know when I'm sitting here in church, I already know that only Jesus can bring me security and stability in life. But I'm trying to meet that desire in a way that's not him, in a person that's not him, in a sales number that's not him, in a, in a relationship or in a thing I'm buying on Amazon. Like I know it's not going to bring me that, but I'm still chasing that same desire. The third is opportunity. Here's the weird thing about sin. All of us, before we ever commit a voluntary act of sin or brokenness or addiction or say that thing we didn't really want to say, there is a moment of opportunity. And we call that temptation. Like Jesus was tempted. Every single time he was tempted, he had opportunities. Every single time before the affair, there's an opportunity. Every single time before the cheating moment happens on the test, there's an opportunity. We're all built with it because God loves us and cares. But there's an opportunity. Does this make me in the future more vulnerable to this same thing? Because here's what I know. Most of us do not struggle with different sins every single day. It, it ends up being the same couple we go back to over and over and over again. It's like this groove in our brain. It's a neural pathway created of broken thinking and broken living. There's an opportunity. The fourth is long-term thinking. See, idols think short-term. What will this do for me now? And following Jesus long-term asks, would this make it to my eulogy? Will this matter when I am gone? Well, what I'm doing, the life I'm living, the decisions I have made, are they actually helping me flourish and live back in line with the way God has created me, or are they actually creating me for short-term gratification uh, that will never bring the satisfaction Jesus can bring. That kind of thing. If you work through those, sometimes, like I prayed through those this week for me and tried to figure out, is this thing becoming an idol? And it's so easy because those things can creep up, just like in Solomon's life. I want to talk just for a second, and then we'll be done. What about, what about us? What about us? Byron Center, Michigan, 2022. What, what is it for us? And I can't speak to every single one of you because I don't know all of you. I don't know your life. I don't know the things that are hidden. I don't know the things that feel really hard for you to shake off or get free from. I don't know those. I think for most of us, going back to Tim Keller's kind of grid for this, we struggle with the two of those first ones. That for a lot of us, our idols are in the, the bucket of comfort. How do I stay comfortable how do, I, how do I not break out? How do I not do anything that's kind of out of my kind of normal comfort zone? For some of us, that's in the form of making more money or better retirements or better vacations or nicer cars, whatever it is. And the second, I think, is just as deceptive is the, the idol of control. How do I control? I've sat with some of you. It's like as soon as your kids hit 18, they leave the house. There's a feeling, a loss of control. And that is difficult. That's awful. That's hard. It's weird. It's hard to describe. But for some of us, we've so insulated our lives or our family's lives, we don't take any risks. I'm not inviting that person to church. I'm not going to give. I'm not going to serve. 
I'm not going to share my faith, whatever. I'm not going to be vulnerable and confess this sin issue. I'm not going to do any of that because it's going to put me at risk. It's going to make me look bad. It's going to break that control, that veneer at least, of control that I have. And, and I'd be lying to say that Lindsay and I, we struggle with those two more than the other two. I don't have like a burning desire necessarily for power. Uh, God's freed me, I think, from the idol of approval over and over again. That's been like a, a constant work. But the issues of control and comfort are ones I still feel. John Gorvet likes to be comfortable. He likes to have things neatly organized and clean. John Gravett likes to control things. John, John likes to know where things are going. John doesn't like pandemics that ruin his job. John doesn't like those things because they are very, very disorienting. And Lindsay and I, some of the most tense arguments we've ever had have been around those two idols of control and comfort. Control and comfort back and forth. But what this looks like, like to do it right, if you, if you just say, okay, I'm going to follow Solomon's example, I'm going to lead a different life, this looks like a family that sets aside a percent of their income to bless others despite the pull of sports and Nikes and PS5s. This looks like the college student who takes a risk and plants themselves in a local church for the long haul despite the pull of flashier and better. This looks like the 55-year-old single guy who decides to take faith at work seriously and begins to pray for employees and pray through their hard things and their situations. This looks like the high school student who invites his friends to church despite the relational risk, despite the reputation being put on the line. See, friends, this is what it means to break free and to truly not just live something you're not, but live something that God has created you to be. I love theologian Andrew Murray writes this, and this line has stuck out to me for years. And I try to keep it in the front of my mind because I, I really do have come to believe it's true. He says, God is ready to assume full responsibility for the life fully yielded to him. One more time. God is ready to assume full responsibility for the, full, for the life fully yielded to him. When I think about this, I think about what we're talking about. I think about people who year after year, have taken the step of baptism here. And what baptism is, is not like a finish line. No one gets, I hope, no one gets baptized to say, I've arrived, I made it, I'm here, I'm perfect, I've, I've made it. But people who've just taken the decision to get baptized, despite the maybe like, oh, I don't want to get on stage, or oh, it's weird, or oh, man, people won't think I'm as Christian as I look, or whatever, baptism really is a starting line. It's a surrender moment. It's a chance to say, God, you have my full allegiance. And I don't have all the answers. I don't have all these idle situations figured out quite yet. But here's what I know. You have my heart. You have my life. I'm going to try my best to follow you. And I think about someone we baptized a few months ago. His name was Nate. And, and Nate grew up in a religious environment. He knew all the right answers. Went to a Christian school. He had all the things figured out. But what he didn't have was a, a, a moment a chance to look back and say, that's when I surrendered. That's when I decided to not live in just worshiping my idols, but to live for something greater. And one of my favorite moments of the last year was getting to baptize Nathan here. Because he's starting to get it. Doesn't have it all figured out. He's, he'd say, I'm like a year into all this. But he made the choice. And some of you will do that in a few weeks. February 20, some of you will do that. You will make the decision to say, I don't have all the answers or everything figured out, but here's what I know. I want to be fully surrendered 
to Jesus. I want him to lead. I want to live in the design he has created me to live in. Our father will never fail us, but our idols always will. And the invitation is just to come before God today with those things and say, they're yours. My desire, the opportunity, maybe my short-term thinking, <laughs> maybe, maybe the behavior or the way of, of doing things, maybe even just your independence. Surrender is on the other side. Surrender is the way to keep moving in God's way, to keep moving in his design for us. I can't think of a better way today to close than by celebrating communion together, by celebrating this meal. Some of you, this is a new thing. Some of you have maybe done this a long time ago, but there's going to be at a table in the back. We're going to sing a few songs. And just any time during those few songs, we're going to give you the space to go back. And, and communion really is a way to say, God, I'm just going to live, I'm going to live into the reality that you sacrifice everything for me so that I could be whole, I could be free, I could be your child in a way that I would never encounter apart from you. It's, it's body, and broke, body and blood shed, broken for you. People who do not deserve, people who don't care, it's for you. That meal is for you. There's no prerequisites to this. And so what I want to do is pray for us, and we're going to sing at any time in the next couple songs. I'd invite you and your family or maybe you as an individual to go back and to receive that when you feel like the time is right. So would you pray with me? God, thank you for this opportunity. Uh, we pray that that you would. For, for some of us, this is the beginning of a journey. For some of us, it's it's getting clear on the ways that we just are almost ingrained in us. Because it's been so long since we got real and got honest about the idols and the little gods in our life. And we know, at the very core of us, we know, God, you will never fail us. You have designed us for a vibrant, real, personal, tangible relationship with you. And that in some way, that, that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us. The same spirit of, of Christ, our Savior, of, of the Messiah, that you are at work in us. And even though we don't understand all the realities and the mysteries of that, I pray that through this meal and through this warning from 1 Kings, God, that you'd set us on a different path than maybe the one we were on when we walked in here. And I, and I pray that for me. pray that for our family, too. So we love you, Jesus. We surrender to you. It's in your name that we pray.